My favorite part of The Hobbit is when uh, Thor and Oakenshield and his company, including Gandalf and Bilbo, meet someone named Bayorn. And Bayorn's really interesting because he's known for being a, a recluse and not very friendly, but he's also uh, a skin changer, meaning that at will he can turn into a big, terrible uh, bear. And he's huge and he's ferocious. Um, but the scene in which we meet Bayorn in The Hobbit uh, follows a sequence that the previous chapter's title summarizes well, which is out of the pan and into the fire. Before they even get to Bayorn, the company of dwarves and Bilbo and sometimes Gandalf have nearly been eaten by trolls, captured by goblins. Bilbo's already encountered Gollum and acquired the Ring of Power. They've escaped being chased by the goblins and the goblin king and their wargs, which are big, ferocious war beasts. They've been saved by the giant eagles and after being chased by these wargs, they finally make it to Bayorn's house. And I love this part because uh, even though Bayorn needs some convincing, he gives Oakenshield and his group the rest and refreshment they need to continue their journey. Bayorn in his bear form protects the perimeter from them, for, for them, allowing them to sleep. But in his human form, he feeds them breakfast. He gives them supplies. He gives the dwarves ponies, and he gives Gandalf a regular-sized horse. And he also gives them helpful information, followed by a stark warning. But if it's not for the kindness of Bayorn and the refreshment offered by his good works, the company probably would have struggled to move another mile. In fact, they're so disturbed and distraught by his warning before they leave, how much more discouraged would they have been without his courtesy. And I say this because this morning, deep refreshment through Jesus Christ and obeying his commands as believers is what our text is about this morning. So let us read Philemon verses 4 through 7. I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have towards the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you brother. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time in your word. May we be edified and sanctified, and may you be glorified. Help us to beam our eyes to your son. Help us to be refreshed. Help us to rest in the finished work of your son, and help us to be encouraged to love one another and to serve one another and to obey your commands. In Jesus' name, amen. So in your notes, I gave you a brief summary of kind of where we're going this morning. So the summary of the text we're studying is that Paul thanks God for Philemon and his fruitful faith and good works that glorify God and refreshes the saints, blesses the saints. 
A summary of application as we walk through this is that good works are what God has commanded in his word not to be done out of guilt, but by grace through and out of gratitude. And we are shown Christ in this text because Christ fulfills the law on your behalf. He dies on your behalf and he gives you his righteousness. He is the greater Philemon, and that he gives your heart true refreshment. That's where we're going this morning. So let us begin. Verse 4, I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers. If you've read the New Testament, you know that this is a main motif of Paul. I mention you in my prayers, or I thank God because of you or for you. It's a common motif. If it sounds familiar, it's because it is. It pops up in his letters a lot. He's a man of prayer. He's constantly praying for these churches, praying for the church. So if I could ask you this morning, when you tell someone that you're going to pray for them, do you know what that means? When you tell someone you're going to pray for them, do you know what that means? When you tell someone you're going to pray for them, I ask you, do you really mean it? Do you actually do it? And how do you feel when someone tells you that you're being prayed for? So first we ask, what is prayer and what is Paul's use of it? Well, prayer is communion with God, simply put. Prayer is communion with God. Prayer is speaking to God and Him listening. Prayer is speaking to God and Him listening. And Christians have a unique relationship with God through prayer because, again, Christ died in our place. Making atonement so that we can go before God and speak directly to him without exploding. We are allowed to boldly approach God's throne. And we can bring our needs to him. And he hears every word that we say. Paul, therefore, prays to the triune God, going boldly before the throne of grace, and brings Philemon with him, so to say. So when you say that you're going to pray for someone, do you know what that means? And I answer that when you say you're praying for someone, you're grabbing them by the metaphorical hand and bowing before the Lord and asking God to heal them to help them, to comfort, to convict, to grant faith, to grant repentance. And again, this is a common practice for Paul. And today is a specific example of Paul telling Philemon that he's praying for him. That he's going before the God of the universe and mentioning Philemon. So if this is what prayer is, how should you feel when someone says they're going to pray for you? You should be honored. You should be humbled. You should be happy. A brother or sister is going before the Ancient of Days and they're talking about you. But how often do we not feel that way? Have we become so disenfranchised with the phrase that we just nod and say thanks? We just hear, I'll be praying for you. And our passive acceptance just says, I'm sure you will. Thanks. Is it because we say it passively? Do we deeply mean it? 
Paul tells Philemon how his own heart and the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by his works and godly character. But how could Philemon's own heart not be refreshed to hear that a real life flesh and blood apostle prays for him? But we should feel the same. That a sinner who has been sainted and conformed into the image of the Son is praying for us. Paul does not waste words. And he means it. So the first application point for you this morning is that when you say you're going to pray for someone, do it. When, you are going to pray for, when you're going to pray for someone, you should actually do it. In verse 5, he says, Because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have towards the Lord Jesus Christ and all the saints. Philemon has two loves, and these two loves coincide with the greatest commandments. He's known for his love of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord Jesus Christ's bride, the church, the saints. We read it this morning, but if you've read the Gospels, this should remind, uh, recall to your mind the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, teaching on the law. Because these two loves are exactly who he commands us to love. Matthew 23, or 22, 37 through 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Philemon is obeying God's law. Philemon is obeying God's law. Philemon loves the Lord Jesus Christ and he loves his neighbor. He is simply doing what God commands him to do. He's not perfect. There's only been one man who's perfect. Philemon is a sinner, sinner who's been sainted. He could never fulfill this law perfectly. He will fail to love God perfectly. He will fail to love his neighbor perfectly. And this should immediately beam our eyes to Christ. For Christ is the only one who could fulfill God's law Perfectly, John 14, 31, he loves the Father. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. He loves his neighbor, he loves his brothers and sisters so much that he dies for them. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Philemon loves God and his neighbor, but Jesus is greater than Philemon. Wherever Philemon fails, wherever we fail, Christ succeeds. And Paul's purpose in saying this is twofold. He really does mean it when he says he prays for Philemon. He really does mean it when he says he's heard of Philemon's love for the Lord Jesus Christ and the church. As stated in my first sermon, um, in the first Three verses here, um, verse three or verse two here, it mentions that he has a church in his house. So whether that's a church that regularly meets in his house or a large group of Christians from the local church that meets in his house, he really does love the church and he hosts the church regularly. But he's also reminding Philemon of his love for Jesus and the saints before he tells him that Onesimus has repented. 
that Philemon, or that Onesimus himself has become one of the saints. And this is incredibly smart. It's not manipulative. We could call it a pro-gamer move if we want because he's not gaslighting Philemon. He's reminding Philemon. So let us not forget that the purpose behind the letter is that Philemon is asking, or excuse me, that Paul is asking Philemon to forgive Onesimus and to receive him as a brother in Christ because he has repented and believed. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that Philemon has both love and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. However, it's important to say that he loves the Lord because he has faith. Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Those who do not have faith do not love God. Do not be fooled by people who say, I'm not very religious, but I am spiritual. Whatever that means. But also don't be fooled by those who say they love God, but hate the church. Maybe you've heard them say, oh, I love God. I cannot stand the church. Well, I, I love Jesus, but I can't go to church. I can't stand Christians. They're hypocrites. Well, John the Revelator writes in 1 John 2.11, But the one who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. If you love God but hate your neighbor, guess what? You don't love God. God. Not only does this put you outside the bounds of Scripture, but you're outside the bounds of creedal orthodoxy. We say in the Nicene Creed, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Orthodox, Bible-believing Christians believe in the church's nature, purpose, and mission. It is because you've been loved by God and given faith that you can truly love others. Because Philemon has been granted faith and repentance, he can love the saints and love the church. It's because God has granted you faith and repentance that in this sense you can love and believe in the church. If you don't, or excuse me, you don't just love Jesus, but you also must love his bride. If I could illustrate it this way, my best friends, the ones that I'm closest to, are the ones that don't just love me well, but they're the ones who love my wife well. They love me, but they also love my wife. But if you say you love me, but you hate my wife, then what am I supposed to make of that? He says, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have towards the Lord Jesus Christ and towards all the saints. He's obeying God's commands. Now, verse 6 is a little interesting. We could use some grammatical exegesis for some help, right? Uh, fellowship here is uh, meaning participation. Participation, the sense is the act of sharing in activities or privileges of an intimate association or group. Uh, the word is very specifically often used of churches and marriage. And effective here means active. 
active. The senses producing uh, or capable of producing an intended result. So he says, I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. It means that Philemon's faith isn't an idle faith, but rather it's locomotive. It means, as James writes, that faith without works is dead. It means that his faith is active. Paul is praying that Philemon's faith would continue to be active, that he would continue to do good works for the kingdom, and that his faith would be complemented by works, the fruit of salvation, not the source. That the good works he do would be the fruit of his salvation and not the source. And this raises questions. Questions like a law gospel distinction or what are good works? So if we could take a brief excursus here, maybe we can clear up some confusion. Spurgeon said that if you can master the distinction between the law and gospel and the scriptures, then you basically have a masters of divinity. So what is the law and what is the gospel? The law is what God righteously requires. I have these summaries in your notes here. The law is what God righteously requires, and the gospel is what God graciously provides. The law says, go and do, and the gospel proclaims it is done. So what is the law? We start with the Mosaic law. It's the written law of God for God's people, Israel, to obey. If they were to be righteous, they would need to uphold it perfectly. So God chooses a people and gives them laws to obey and then makes a sacrificial system for when they fail to obey those laws. But there's also the moral law, or you may know it as the the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments summarize the Mosaic law and is written on everyone's hearts. Romans 2, 14 through 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts and their conscience bearing witness in their thoughts, alternately accusing or else defending them. So that includes everyone from Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel, all the way up to you and me, the moral law or the Ten Commandments are written on your hearts. And it's important to note that the moral law or the Ten Commandments have two sections. The first four directing our relationship with God and the second directing our relationships with each other. So again, coming back, the two greatest commands, love the Lord, love your neighbor. So what is the gospel then if that's the law? The the gospel is what God graciously provides. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, assumed humanity through the incarnation and dwelled among man. And he perfectly upheld every single law without fault or failure. 
Jesus Christ had no other gods. He made no other idols. He never took God's name in vain. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He honored his father and mother. He never murdered or hated his neighbor. He never lusted or committed adultery. He never stole. He never lied. He never coveted. All that the father commanded him to do, he did. And he did it perfectly. The gospel is that Jesus Christ has done everything we never could, and he did it perfectly. The gospel is that Jesus Christ, who was the perfect spotless lamb, was slaughtered to make atonement for God's chosen people. The gospel is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He was born perfectly, he lived perfectly, he died perfectly, he was resurrected perfectly, and now he's ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father, you guessed it, perfectly. But within the law, there are three uses. We must stop thinking that God's law is bad. God wrote the law, therefore it is good. But there are three uses for the law. These, again, are in your notes. The first is to expose our sin and to exalt the holiness of God. The law shows just how sinful we really are and just how holy and perfect God is. The second use is the civil use, which is to curb, restrain, or restrict evil. And the third use is to guide the regenerate into good works that God has planned for him. So for us today, the first and third use are of primary importance. So the first use, again, everything I listed that Christ did not do, we have done at some point. So therefore, God's law exposes your unrighteousness and your sin and points you to God's righteousness and perfections. Philemon has experienced the first use of the law. Philemon is a regenerate believer. He has had his unrighteousness exposed by the law. And the third use is for believers who have been granted faith in God and repentance for their sins against God. The law is now a guide for good works. A guide into good works. Uh, a helpful uh, a mnemonic device or, or memory device would be guilt, grace, and gratitude. Again, these are in your notes. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. So guilt, we are all guilty of breaking God's law. Philemon was guilty of breaking God's law. Grace, but he was saved by grace. If you are a believer here, you were saved by grace. Christ fulfills the law and graces us with the gift of his righteousness. And gratitude, because we've been saved, we serve the Lord out of gratitude through doing good works. Again, guilt, we are guilty of breaking God's law. Grace, we have been saved by grace. And gratitude, because we've been saved by grace, we can serve the Lord out of gratitude. So children, your catechism question number four, how can, you lo- how can you glorify God? By loving him and doing what he 
commands. Serve the Lord with gratitude. Obey God's law out of gratitude, not guilt. So with all that in place, let's return to our text. We're able now to get a tighter meaning around what Paul is saying. Philemon has experienced guilt and grace, for we know that he is a believer. But also Philemon has been serving the Lord in gratitude. Philemon has love and faith, and Paul is praying that the fellowship of his faith would continue to be effective. So how are good works effective? Because they aren't of us. They're of Christ. As we just sang a few moments, that the power to do your commands would never come from me. It is not us, but Christ in us. The knowledge of every good thing in us isn't for us or of us. It's of Christ. He says here, that, but the knowledge of or through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. We can happily say and we must say that it is not me, but Christ in me. John Gill is helpful here. He says that every good thing that is in the saints or among them should be acknowledged to come to them in and through Christ Jesus and should be owned as done by the grace and strength of Christ. Is that not glorious and humbling? That not only can you not contribute to your justification and salvation, you can't even contribute to your sanctification. That it is the work of the Spirit in you. So again, you can say happily that all the good works that you are able to do are not you, but Christ in you. Paul is praying that Philemon can continue to say that it's not me, it's Christ in me. So what are good works? What are good works? The Heidelberg Catechism, question 91, says this. Asking, what are good works? Only those which are done out of true faith conform to God's law and are done for his glory. And are not those based on our own opinion or human tradition. Spoiler, the Second London Confession pretty much agrees with this exactly in its first paragraph. But the Second London does expand in paragraph two. These good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. And by them, believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of adversaries, and glorify God, whose workmanship they are, created in Christ Jesus thereunto. This fits like a missing piece in a puzzle here. I pray that your fellowship may, of your faith may become effective. So good works, good works, another application for you is that good works are what God has commanded in his word not to be done out of guilt, but by grace, out of, added, uh, out of gratitude. So who are these good works Four, quickly, they're for our brothers and sisters, they're for our adversaries, and they're for God. First, we'll work backwards here with God. Good works glorify God. Pretty simple. Good works glorify God. Matthew 5, 14. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. 
We do good works not so that we're glorified, but so that God would be glorified. Man's chief end is not to be glorified by man, but it is to glorify God. You do not do good works to receive accolades from your brothers and sisters, strangers and neighbors, but so God might receive all the glory. God does not need man's glory, but he's the only person worthy of all the glory. May we not forget the fifth sola. Solo, sola Deo Gloria, God's glory alone. Our adversaries, to stop the mouths of our adversaries, we do good works as a Christian witness. Though the salvific benefits of our faith cannot be shared with anyone, the non-salvific benefits can be. We can serve those who oppose us by doing good works despite their derisions. And finally, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and this leads us into verse 7 perfectly. He says, For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Paul has comfort and joy in Philemon. Joy, uh, the word here, it, it means the emotion of great happiness and pleasure. Comfort is encouragement, comfort, since being a source of comfort, comfort a person feels when consoled in a time of disappointment. Being consoled in a time of disappointment. So you may recall from my first letter that this is what we call a captivity letter or a prison letter of Paul. That Paul is writing this while he's under house arrest in Rome. So indeed, the good news of Philemon being a faithful Christian to the glory of the triune God is indeed a source of joy and great comfort. We'll find out later in the letter that Philemon was converted under Paul. So this would obviously be great news for him to hear. That they are that this news is a joy and a comfort, and again, he means it truly and deeply. But as regards the saints, they have had their hearts refreshed. The saints have had their hearts refreshed. Hearts meaning uh, affection or their inward parts, the deep part of their being. And having been refreshed meaning revived, rest, to be caused to take a rest from activities. In order to be refreshed. So to be caused to take a break from activities. In order to be refreshed. The hearts of the saints are being refreshed. Like they've woken up after sleeping eight hours straight. The sense is not how we would think of the word refreshment. Such as maybe like an appetizer or something to temporarily cure hunger. But rather it's a complete renewal of energy. A complete renewal of of energy. So I ask, when was the last time you got a good night of sleep? We got a lot of parents in here, so <laughs> probably not recently. But when was the last time you slept really well after a long day of work? It's hard to beat that feeling, that feeling of a complete renewal of energy, complete refreshment. So I return to my initial point with the hobbit, that Beorn refreshed the hearts of the company of Thorin 
after they had escaped calamity and disaster over and over again, constantly being on the run, something around every corner, trying to take their lives. And Beorn offers them rest, refreshment. He refreshes their hearts. So how might we refresh the hearts of the saints? How is Philemon refreshing the hearts of the saints? He's obeying God's commands. Obeying God's commands out of gratitude. He's loving the Lord his God and loving his neighbor. And the same is for us. How might we refresh the hearts of the saints? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Again, recalling the confession that our good works edify our brothers and sisters in Christ. Recall the third use of the law, that believers are now to be guided by the law into good works that God has planned for you to do. And this is exactly what Philemon is doing to refresh the hearts of the saints. He's loving God and loving neighbor. But just like Philemon, you are a sinner, and you will fall short, and you will fail. I am a sinner. I have fallen short. I have failed. I have failed at upholding God's law. And so have you. Usually I give you a hymn. Today I'll give you some Reliant K. We're all guilty of the same things, whether we think the thoughts, whether or not we see them through. We are all guilty of breaking God's law. You will fail to do good works. But this failure points us directly to Christ, the one who gives complete rest and refreshment. Sin is constantly buffeting us, and the law is exposing our sinfulness. And yet Christ refreshes our hearts and gives us the rest we so desperately need. He has filled all of the, fulfilled all of the law's demands. And he has died in our place so that we may have rest. Hebrews 4, 9 through 10. So there is, remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Believe in Jesus Christ and enter into his rest. And perhaps this is how you feel. Restless, tired, in desperate need of refreshment. Perhaps the first law, first use of the law is having its effect and showing you just how sinful you are. But rather than believing in the finished work of Christ, you continue to make Promises to God that you can't keep. Starts on Monday. I'll be a better person. I'll sin less. I'll work harder. I'll do better. And that's not just for unbelievers. Believers can fall into the trap of thinking this way as well. But if you're here today and you are either an unbeliever or a believer... You can find rest in Christ. If you are an unbeliever, you can not only have your heart 
refreshed, but regenerated and renewed. Jesus gives you a new heart and he gives you rest. And if you are a believer, he gives you rest too. There's no greater rest than what comes from Christ. So my exhortation to you this morning is to dwell on the law and gospel. To dwell on the guilt, grace, and gratitude that we have. And to be guided into the law, by the law, into good works. But to rest in the gospel of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. St. Augustine has a famous line from his book, Confessions, where he says, God has made us for himself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in him. Our hearts are restless until they rest in him. Let's pray. Father, help us to rest in you. We are thankful for your law, that the law exposes our sin and shows us just how holy you are. Remind us this morning, remind us of how wicked our sin is, but just how deep your love is, that you have covered and washed away our sins with the blood of your son. We thank you, Lord. Remind us and exhort us this morning. Guide us into good works. Help us to refresh the hearts of our brothers and sisters. Help us to love you and to love our neighbor. And to remind us of Christ who did both of those things perfectly. We ask all of this in your son's name. Amen.